So as you recall, uh, last week, those of you here, we started a new series, um, Church in the City. And uh, we, we were really just giving a very kind of broad brush overview of the, uh, the kind of the big ideas of what it means to be um, a church that's located, physically located, in the center of one of the greatest cities on earth. What this, some of the implications for that. And it's got to impact us. It's going to impact us on a day-to-day basis. It's also going to impact what church looks like, how it feels, and what's different about uh, church in the city, and something of our mission, our call. And so we're really trying to get into that whole theme for a couple of months. And my passion, my hope, is that um, we'll really address this whole thing where some people feel uh, very much called to the city or passionate about being in London, and church is an afterthought. Other people feel passionate about church, and for them, the city is a kind of afterthought. It just happens to be the case that my church is in London, therefore I'll stay in London. But what we want is to see that coming together where you feel um, com- committed to the local church, but also hungry to see God impact the city that we live in. And so this week we're moving on to um, the second in the series. Um, I, was, I was preparing um, on Friday up at um, Tim Chaddock's office and he, he invited me to go and use some of his space up there because I usually work from home and he, he glanced over my shoulder and saw the title it was like City of Thrones I like it dude <laughs> <laughs> I was like no it's City of Thorns sorry it's a, just slightly less exciting but um, anyway let's read Mark chapter 4 um, we're going to read the first 20 verses very familiar parable you've been around church for, for very long, but we're really only going to pick up from just one idea in this parable and riff off that as we uncover this theme. So, again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, Some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that they may indeed see, but not perceive. And may indeed hear, but not understand. Lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all 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 the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. We're very conscious, aren't we, in the city that we live in, that that's true for very many people. That as we share something of our faith and what we believe and the truth about Jesus, who he is, what he did, and the fact that he's raised from the dead, it is is of no interest to, to very many people. It's like this, a seed is immediately stolen away. He said, these are the ones on rocky ground. Uh, and he said, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. It talks about people who seem to have some kind of temporary faith, that they, for a moment, seem to believe uh, what Jesus has to say about himself and the gospel. 
But it doesn't last long. The minute it becomes difficult to be a Christian, um, that faith is kind of revealed to not be something real, something lasting. And then where we want to spend our time just thinking, he says, and the others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. What we were kind of exploring last week was this idea that um, Keller speaks about the city in this way. He says the city is humanity intensified. A magnifying glass that brings out the very best and worst of humanity. It has a dual nature. The city is humanity intensified. You put millions of people together in a place like London, and the human heart begins to express itself in wonderful ways and in ugly ways. We see some of the best expressions of what humanity is capable of in culture and creativity, in the, the, the thought leading that goes on in a city like this, in the arts and all these kinds of things. And of, of course, all of this is a gift from God. He made us in his image, and we celebrate um, the creativity and the abilities of humankind as implanted by the living God. And we're tracing through some of the ways the Bible is so positive about cities as something of God's design, actually, to bring people together into community to create human flourishing. But today, I really want to look at that kind of the more, the more negative side, the fact that cities also produce the worst of human um, ability and the worst of human thinking and the worst of human culture, that they, they also bring out the worst in us. And the question I want to start with is, why is that the case? Why is it that a city like London has such um, darkness sort of woven into all the beauty and all the kind of um, amazing creativity and ability that we see here? And one of the answers to that question is just proximity. That wherever you put lots of people together in one place, there is the effect of community, of being close together, that, that creates all the kind of stimulus of the human heart in terms of competitiveness and envy and outdoing one another that can tend towards good and can also tend towards evil. And this, this, this power, this dynamic that's at work among humanity when they're in such close proximity is basically a form of discipleship. That's a Christian word. It simply means to learn from others. Um, but discipleship happens on a mass scale in cities as you see pockets of, of learners learning together for good and also for evil, reproducing the evil of the human heart, magnifying it, exaggerating it, bringing it into focus and running after things. And one of the things that you see, most importantly, and this is the big concept you've got to grasp in your mind today, is that one of the ways in which we're discipled and we're, we're, we're taught in a city like London is that we are, we're discipled to become worshippers. We're discipled to become worshippers of all kinds of things. A city is where you come to express worship, where you see worship most intensely on display for many, many things. But I want to pick up on just a few of the big things today. I don't know, many, many of you will have come across... Um, there's a, an English professor in the United States called um, 
not, he wasn't English, he was American, but he was a professor of English in the United States called David Foster Wallace, who um, sadly committed suicide. Um, and, but he was, in his short career, he kind of shot to fame for his ability with words. He was a wordsmith and a thinker, and crucially, also an atheist. And there's a famous um, lecture that he gave at a commencement speech at, um, at a college in the United States called This Is Water. You might have seen little YouTube reproductions of it and, or maybe read the whole thing, the transcript that you can find easily online. And this guy, this atheist, talks about the human tendency to worship and he, he captures it so perfectly. He says, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. He says, there's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. I think that, is, that perfectly captures what a city like London is about. London is about people gathering for worship, even if they don't call it that, even if they don't recognize it as that. And the Bible speaks about this, this kind of worship, this tendency of the heart to, to put things primary as idolatry. We don't necessarily attach that word to our day-to-day pursuits. But what's an idol? An idol is, again, this is what, how Keller defines it. He says it's a good thing that has become an ultimate thing. So something that which God made which is good, which the human heart then elevates to becoming the ultimate thing you need in order to find happiness, joy, and fulfillment in life. It might be worth pausing and just considering and asking yourself the question, what is there in my life which I, I know I cannot do without if I want to live a happy life? That's the thing you worship. It's the thing you honor. It's the thing you love the most. Going back to David Foster Wallace, he said that the, the compelling reason for choosing some sort of God, and he lists a bunch of gods from different religions or spiritual type thing to worship, he says, is that pretty much anything else will eat you alive. This is what I want to get into this morning. The dangers of being eaten alive by the idols of the city. I want to pick up on this image of thorns that Jesus uses in in Mark 4. There's a couple of places in the Old Testament where the picture comes from. One of them is in Numbers 33, where God is speaking to the Israelites who found their way by God's grace into the promised land. And he says to them, if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your side, and they shall trouble you. Then over in Judges 2, something really similar. This is a little bit later because the Israelites failed to kind of um, make the land their own. And they lived, they, they lived this coexistence with people who worshipped other gods all around them and in the midst of them. And it led to all kinds of problems in the Israelite community. And Judges 2, he talks about the problem like this. And God says to them, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. So he's saying, look, your greatest problem is that they worship other gods. And then listen carefully. He says, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. I find this really 
fascinating because when Jesus speaks about thorns in Mark 4, this picture that we have, I think he had in mind partly the idols of the cultures that we are immersed in. And especially so when we live in a city like London. That's why I said this is, London is a city of thorns. What does Jesus say here in Mark 4? He says, others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So friends, I don't think there's anything more important or more vital for us as believers to, to ask the question, what is it that could choke my faith in Jesus? What is it that could so rob me of having a single-minded focus upon him that my life proves unfruitful for him and for his glory? What is it that could affect us as a church, as a community, that we might not even perceive, but are like the, the thorns that grow in the field and sap out the spiritual life from us? Because the fact is that not all churches are equal in this sense, are they? There are churches which are dead spiritually, wouldn't that be the, the worst thing in the world for us? And so I want, to ask, I want to think carefully this morning. As much as it's a wonderful privilege for us to be in the city, what are the thorns, what are the idols that we have to be conscious of? And I want, to, I want us to put our finger on three things. The thorn or the idol of security, I mean financial security, of sensuality, particularly around sex, and of significance. The longing for, to make a name for yourself, to be something. Security, sensuality, and significance. Let's start with this first one, security. Jesus speaks here of the thorn of the deceitfulness of riches. We are in one of the wealthiest cities in the world. It is the financial city of the world. The financial hub, the financial center. And there is a dizzying amount of wealth around us, to the degree, actually, that we become almost desensitized to it because it's become so normal. But just the, the square meter of ground that you are sat on is probably worth more than you have in the bank right now. Scary, isn't it, how much money there is in this, in this city? And the city produces something like a quarter of the UK's economy. I mean, this is... Sorry if I sound stupid. I need to talk to the economist before I make statements like that. What does that even mean, Eugene's thinking? But, um, but London is, is, is profoundly and incredibly wealthy. One of the wealthiest cities that has ever existed in the course of human history. That has to mean something, doesn't it, for us as Christians in a city like this? Because this is the water that we swim in. This is the puddle in which we are sitting. This is, this, is the, this is reality for us. Even if you're dirt poor, I mean, you may be living off debt. You come straight to London from wherever and you are a student and you have nothing that you can call your own, except maybe your pencil case and a notebook. But, but may, even if that's you, still, this is, this is the current you swim in and it will start to affect you very, very quickly. I think a lot of people find that this... The lure of London is the, is the lure, of, the allure of, of security, of becoming financially uh, secure, even wealthy. 
And you may say, well, for me, materialism isn't really a big problem. Uh, you may think of yourself as being a little bit detached from that kind of stuff. But ask yourself questions like this. When was the last time that you felt anxious about whether you had enough? When was the last time that you felt anxious about you know, your credit card issue or um, whether you just had enough to pay the rent or this kind of thing? When did you last walk past something beautiful, a car or a house or just an item of clothing in a window and think, if I could have that? Now, doesn't this happen to us almost on a daily basis? Right? When did you, what do you feel when, and we have these friends, we have these friends who like to go to all the best restaurants in London and then put the pictures on Facebook, which is just really annoying. I mean, like, but at the same time, I can't unfollow them because it's like, you know, but I, you feel like, you know, you don't rub it in my face because I can't afford to go there. You know, Heston Blumenthal and all the rest of it. And you think, it's very quick, isn't it, when you're in this environment for these things to begin to affect you. Money is, is very powerful. You ask, what is the call of this particular idol? What is it that, that it promises and seduces us into? And it is, it's, as with all idols, it's the life of worship. It starts to promise you so much by demanding your, your devotion in terms of the sacrifices you make for the attainment of wealth. Why do people pride themselves on how many hours they work in a city like this? That is the, the offering you lay down the altar for money, among other things. That's your sacrificial offering. It's your whole life, actually. It's what it calls for. You think well, people aren't enslaved to this. Of course they're enslaved to this. It starts to shape all your goals. We begin to redefine wants as needs and we start speaking about our need to get this or that or the other. Our need to buy a home, our need to have enough money for this or that. And soon the assumptions of the city we're in and of the idol it worships become our assumptions, become our goals, our desires, our needs. And hence why so many end up enslaved to the, the money idol. You end up enslaved by getting into deep debt, often. Enslaved to the idol of needing to have more and then needing to replace what you have with something newer. I've used this quote before, but I'm going to use it again and probably I'll use it in about six months' time. But Tyler Durden in Fight Club. Anyone seen Fight Club? It's one of the greatest films ever. Um, he, Brad Pitt's character, he says, you buy furniture, you tell yourself, this is the last sofa I'll ever need in my life. Buy the sofa, then for a couple of years, you're satisfied that no matter what goes wrong, at least you've got your sofa issue handled. Then the right set of dishes, then the perfect bed, the drapes, the rug. Then you're trapped in your lovely nest, and the things you used to own, now they own you true. Wisdom from Fight Club. You've got to <laughs> preach it, brother. On that same essay, David Foster Wallace, he says, if you worship money and things, then you will never have enough, never feel that you have 
enough. And a writer called Alexis de Tocqueville spoke of the, he spoke of the problem of the Western world, and particularly of the USA, which is built on the pursuit of, to a large degree, built on the pursuit of wealth and of prosperity. And he says that there is a strange melancholy often haunting inhabitants of democracies in the midst of abundance. This is something I was actually picking up on a few weeks ago, isn't it? That the wealthier nations get, often the more you see depression and mental problems. Because in the midst of abundance, there's this gaping hole of a realization that what I have is never going to be enough. And that there's always someone who has more than you and you need what they have. Now, I think that for us as a church, we cannot be blind to this. If we're blind to it, we'll get killed by it. It's one of the great dangers, one of the thorns that comes in to choke spirituality in the city. You think about the sheer expenditure of your time that can be spent in the pursuit of wealth. And how that, I'm not saying that we shouldn't work, of course not. But what I'm saying is you've got to be cognizant, you've got to be aware of how that affects your walk with God. So much of your time, so much of your energy, and also so much, how much of your mind and emotions are wrapped up in the need to have enough or to have more. It has an impact, doesn't it? This is why Jesus zeroed right in on this when he spoke about anxiety and he focused in on the anxiety for whether you have enough in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Because of all the worries that we have in the world, isn't this one the one most likely to consume our attention? And as it turns in our minds and causes anxiety, it steals our heart away from the worship of the living God. This is why, my friends, this is a great thorn. And it can suffocate your spirituality. It can suffocate your walk with God. The gospel is an invitation to be free from this worship, the worship of this idol. The Bible tells us so often that God is our father, that he is our provider, and that he frees you, therefore, from needing to trust money to trusting him instead. Jesus says, doesn't your heavenly father know what you need before you ask him? As you go down into your room to pray, as you get settled down onto your knees, your father loves you and he knows what you need before you've even voiced that need. There's a precious verse in Romans 8, which just shows us how the gospel frees us from the anxiety of other things. By the way, remember in in Matthew 6, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, the Father will take care of everything else. And then in Romans 8, Paul puts it like this. He says, He, this is the father, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. In other words, he didn't hold back the most precious gift imaginable, which was the offering of his own son on the cross for us. He who did not spare him, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Freedom from the idol of money begins with the conviction that God cares. And that he does not withhold what you need. He is a loving father. Friends, we owe for a church and Christians in London who are not enslaved to this, right? Let's think about the second thing. 
sensuality. As Jesus says here, the desire for other things. The desire for other things. I want to ask you to think, why is London so appealing to so many people? Why is it such a, you know, it's like the the proverbial light in the dark that attracts moths, isn't it? London is such an attractive city to so many people, especially to young people. It's not an accident that we have become a relatively young church. It's just because it reflects the people who are in central London and moving into a city like this. Why is it such an attractive city? Surely the answer is, among other things, but one of the top answers has got to be this, that there is the promise in London of pleasure. It's true on lots and lots of levels. I don't know where you come from. You might come from deepest, darkest Wales or somewhere like that. But (laughs) one of the things... One of the things that draws people to London is that there is just more on offer. You have, you have the best coffee. It's so important to me. You have, you have, um, <laughs> that's true, I've heard Australians do have the best coffee. I've, uh, it's okay, if, if, if you're British, then we'll make do. Um, and the, some of the best food in the world. Uh, some of my friends in the States come from small towns and they ask us, hey, when, when you're going on date nights together, where do, you, where do you go out for dinner? And we're like, well, we don't go to the same place twice because <laughs> there's something like 25,000 restaurants in London. I don't need to go to the same place twice. We like to try new places. And like, that's just mind-blowing, isn't it? Because there's just endless opportunities for pleasure in the city that we live in, right? But I want to focus in on one of the most seductive and powerful Um, pleasures or sensual pleasures that's on offer in a city like London. And it is that the fact that London has a great temple to the god of sex. And of course, there are, it's physical in the sense that there are physical locations in the city that most embody that and, and represent that. But it's also just in the air, isn't it? It's in the culture. You know, I, I, sometimes you become again deadened to just how, how ingrained this is in our culture. It was very obvious to me one time when we spent six weeks away from London in Nazareth, of all places, and we were in mainly an Arab community, and there is a great emphasis on modesty. And we came home, we flew home via EasyJet, landed late at night, um, I think it was Luton, and we, we traveled in by coach into central London. We had to change at Marble Arch, and it was like two or three in the morning at this point. We had to get a night bus. And as we unloaded off the bus onto Oxford Street, I looked around and I was like, oh my goodness. It was like suddenly I'm aware of flesh everywhere in a way like you're no, no, never normally aware. Of course, it's stupid being on Oxford Street at 2 o'clock in the morning, but you know, it's so sexualized and a lot of the time we're just not aware of it. And what is it then? Ask this. What is it that is the allure, the power of sensuality, the demand that calls something so deep from the human heart in terms of response of devotion and worship. I don't think it's enough just to say, well, it's pleasurable. I don't think that's a deep enough answer. I think the answer is more along the lines of that what's being offered here is a pseudo-spiritual experience. That what people really are running after when they, when they try and fill their life with sensual pleasure is transcendence. 
the possibility, if only for a moment, of reaching a higher plane of existence through pleasure. This is, this is clear in, in the way we sing and the songs that are on the airwaves. Um, here's Bruno Mars, locked out of heaven. Um, he says, <laughs> Never had much faith in love or miracles. Miracles, are. Uh, never want to put... <laughs> Never want to put my heart on the line, uh. But swimming in your world is something spiritual, spiritual, uh. I'm born again every time you spend the night. Because your sex takes me to paradise. Yeah, your sex takes me to paradise. You find that theme again and again through the popular poetry of pop songs. Sex is paradise, it's transcendence, it's a pseudo-spiritual experience that people are running after. Because if the ordinary life is grey and mundane and often just difficult, then for a moment you can experience something on a higher plane. And so it's viewed this way, a kind of ecstasy. And this is why I'm calling it worship. But once more, I think you've got to recognise that if this is an idol, then all idols enslave, don't they? And sex enslaves. I find it interesting that the culture has caught up with what the Bible has been saying for millennia in this regard, in using the language of addiction, which is, of course, the language of slavery, because it says that you cannot help it, that you are, you are under the rule of a, of a, of a brutal master. And so one of the ways that people, especially celebrities it seems these days, excuse a life of, um, of, of, of sleeping around and of going from person to person is they call it a sex addiction. And if it's true on the physical level, of course it's also true. Um, and there's a resonance there with, with, uh, with other forms of sexual indulgence. If this an omission of slavery here to this idol. Why is it so powerful? The answer is because whereas the worship of the living God restores you and leaves you so full of joy and happiness that sustains you in your normal day-to-day life, the worship of false idols is like drinking seawater. You take a big gulp and you feel thirstier than ever before. You might have a moment of relief, but it is so fast gone. They call it the power of diminishing returns. As you lay your life down and believing that this pleasure will, will fill your, your angst, your, your hungry soul, what you actually discover is it didn't satisfy you and next time you need to go back for even more. And it gets darker and more perverted the more you lay your life down to the God of sex. Again, David Foster Wallace. just find his insight so amazing, speaking as someone who's not even a Christian, but he puts his finger on it. He says, worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. He's saying that ultimately it, it can't, it's not a good God to worship for the reason he cites, that we end up being destroyed. You think about the tragic figure of Hugh Hefner, 
died just a, a week or two back. A caricature of himself. That's what you become when you lay your life down for these false gods. And I think this it goes some way to explaining why we have so much um, obsession with the body. On the one hand, body boasting. You know, when did it become appropriate to reveal yourself and then post pictures online for all the world to see and on your social media accounts? When did that become a thing that you are meant to do? How, how did we become so, so, so deceived into thinking that this is normal behavior? It's bizarre, isn't it, really, if you think about it? Here, look at my flesh. Look at my bicep. Look at, look at my rippling muscles or whatever it is you've got. We've become obsessed with the body in boasting. We've also become obsessed with the body in terms of the, the profound insecurities that we have around our bodies. And while I think that the causes of that are often complex, surely, surely one of the deepest root causes of it is the sexualization of the culture that we live in. That you have become an object that must be worthy of worship in order to be anything in a society that is given over to the worship of sex. The dangers for the church are pretty obvious, but I really want you to think about just one. That whereas God-honoring sex, pure sex within the marriage covenant is something that brings joy and that enhances your walk with God, the tragic reality of the worship that you offer to the idol of sex is that it actually just produces shame. It produces a tendency to hide. As Jesus said here, the thorns come in and suffocate or choke the word in your life. The power of shame when you are given over to the idol of sensuality is that it will choke your spirituality by causing you to hide, retreat, and withdraw from the Christian community. And certainly to split your life in two so that you'll have a church face and a, a dark side that you want to keep covered up and hidden. Of course, one of the only ways to walk in freedom from this is to bring what is in the dark into the light. Praise Jesus that he comes to us as the gracious savior by the gospel who removes all shame. He says, I died on the cross for that sin. There's a sense of demand in what he says to us. He says, you can pursue those fleeting pleasures and see where it leads you or you can have me. But there is the sense of promise as well. He says, if you choose me, I'll give you all that you need. I'll cover your shame. And I'll fill your life with joy and peace and happiness. Do you actually believe that? The extent to which you believe that is the extent to which you walk with him in purity and faithfulness in this area of your life. I want to focus on just this last idol. The idol of significance. As Jesus says here, the cares of the world. What is it that London cares about and recognizes above all else? What is the most precious commodity in the city that we live in? And I think the answer, arguably, is status. And I don't mean in the old-fashioned traditional sense of having a title necessarily, though those things still have power or of having position, or those, that kind of thing. I think it's become a lot more subtle in the modern age than that. 
that actually a lot of our status and a lot of the significance is wrapped up with, with, with becoming something special, being recognized as special in terms of your gifts, in terms of your expertise, in terms of your brilliance, in terms of your, your achievements in life, regardless of how high you climb on the social ladder. I find this reflected in, in, in movies that we've, We've, we've become a world that worships genius. Have you noticed that? We have documentaries about genius, an obsession and interest with, with giftedness, goodwill hunting. This kid from somewhere in America. Where's he from? I can't even remember. Boston. Yeah, that's it. And he's, um, he's you know, he's, what sets him apart is not his character or anything of the kind. It's his, his sure... It's, um, his raw, sheer ability in the mind that he has, photographic memory, profound reasoning skills, and ability to do, solve mass problems on the spot. And we're fascinated by giftedness and status and significance in these kinds of ways. The man who knew infinity, these kinds of movies, it's reflected in, all this, kind, in, in, in this way, in the, what we've begun to worship and idolize. And the promise in a city like London is that as you carve out your niche, as you become special in who you are and your identity and you find yourself and you excel in your world, that you will have kudos and honor, that people will begin to admire you. And what is this? What is this desire in our hearts that we, we so long for the admiration of others? And I think if you really think about it, it's, it's the desire to become an eternal being, the desire to become an eternal creature. Because the story goes, the narrative goes, if you don't amount to much in life, you'll be forgotten. But if you are special, then you'll be remembered. You will become eternal. I think this is one of the things that draws people into a, a place like London where you think, I can be something. I can excel. I can rise to the top. I can compete. There's such a poignant moment in that movie, um, Chariots of Fire, and Harold Abrahams, the, the Jewish runner who is sort of the, um, the other main character alongside Eric Little, is having an existential moment an hour before he runs the 100-meter final at the 1926 Olympics. And as he opens up to his coach, he puts it like this. He says, in one hour, I'm going to be on that corridor four feet wide, and I'll have 10 lonely seconds to prove my whole existence. And that is the angst of the need to be something, to be someone that compels so much of the drivenness and the, and the hard work that you see in a city like this. Because again, if this is an idol, then what it does is it promises you so much but calls you into a sacrifice of worship. And what does it call you to sacrifice? Just about everything. To lay your life down for success. When we were on holiday, we, we, we drove a lot and we listened to quite a few audio books. The two of them were the book Grit by Angela Duckworth and the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Two very fascinating insights into, into um, humans and human ability and what drives us, but also, crucially, what makes us successful in life. But the unspoken assumption that lies behind those books, which they never really bothered to argue for, is that you want to be a success. 
The books are offered up to you as a solution to the question of how you can live a successful life without ever making the case that success matters, (coughs) that it's important. Because we take it for granted that that has to be the most important reason for living in our modern age, to live a successful life. We drink it in with our mother's milk. If you're going to be remembered, if you're going to be an eternal being, then you must attain something special in your life. One last time with David Foster Wallace. He says, worship power, and I think we can substitute status success for that in in slightly more modern terminology. He says, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more success over others to numb your own fear. Worship intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And so I think so much of the anxieties that we see in our modern age is that angst to prove something, to demonstrate your worth. Maybe also so much of the loneliness because people isolate themselves in this tunnel vision of my life has got to be about this and neglect the most important things in life in terms of their relationships and family and so on. And of course their spirituality. That's why we see so much envy. That's why we see so much crushing sense of failure and defeat and perfectionism that holds people down in anxieties and fears. And the danger for the church and for your discipleship is clear. Again, how these thorns choke the word in your life. Because making a name for yourself is the very antithesis of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Didn't Jesus invite you to lay down your life and die? How can you be a true worshiper when your life goal has been become about the attainment of worship from others, when you have become the object of worship? And yet, friends, I believe that the gospel frees us from this. That in one swift move, God comes in and takes the foundation away from this idol of success by telling you that you are loved. By telling you that you have nothing to prove. And then inviting you to go low because that's what Jesus did. Remember that we were looking at Philippians earlier this year and how it describes the descent of Jesus. Taking on flesh and then going even lower. Humbling himself as a form of a servant and then going to the cross. And I imagine what would it look like in London if Christians... We don't necessarily withdraw and we don't necessarily perform less well than other people. But we do it with a basic conviction that to go low is to go high. We trust God to elevate us to wherever he wants to put us in life. But basically, going low is the way he wants us to go. To be the servant of all. To be like John the Baptist. He must increase but I must decrease. When you know what Jesus has done for you, it immediately 
starts to bleed out the power of this idol from your heart, doesn't it? If he died for me and he loves me so much to make me his very own, that he would go to the cross for me, then how can I possibly try and substitute him with myself to become the object of the world's delight and worship? How can I do that? How can I elevate myself when I couldn't even save myself? My friend, maybe you need to experience something of the release today from this idol that's driven you and is driving you still. It's power to compel you out of anxieties and fears and hungry goals to get out of bed in the morning and work harder than anyone else. It may be the case that once God's dealt with you, you still work harder than other people, but your whole motive and power for existence has shifted because you do it for him, not for yourself. I imagine a church that lives in the midst of this city of thorns but is beautifully free from the power of them. That money doesn't have the hold on us like it does on the world around. That sex, though a wonderful thing that we thank God for, is also something that has its place and doesn't control us. And that we are not driven like the people around us for security and and that significance, that status that compels so much of the world's activity. When you become like this, your life shines. Of that I am absolutely convicted. I want you to remain seated as we respond in worship to begin. The guys are going to lead us in uh, this song, Hidden, and I'm going to hand out the bread and the wine to take communion. You can sing, or you can just pray. But I encourage you to have dealings with God, because today we've dealt with a number of very big things. And uh, maybe you found some aspect of this particularly challenging or hard-hitting. The right thing to do is always respond to God immediately, and never to delay. To tell him exactly what's going on in your life, that's what confession is. And ask him for his power. That's what dependence looks like. The power to change and the grace of God to forgive you.